So last week, we introduced the last three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6. And Paul's focus shifts from explaining the great doctrine of our salvation as Gentiles and our being brought into a blessed communion with God to how we should live, uh, how we should live our Christian life, living a life that's worthy of our calling. We made an important note last time that we should not think of the first three chapters as God's part and what he's done, and then the final three chapters are part, like we're going to match God. No, God is at work throughout the entire letter. The Bible tells us in Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God remains at work. But now, there's work for us to do. Um, In fact, I've I've heard, I believe, um, I have no reason to disagree, that there are 40 imperatives or commands in the last three chapters of Ephesians. And there are one is one uh, in the first three chapters, which is remember. Um, we talked about that when we, when we went through it in verse 11 of chapter 2. So there's a lot to focus on. For There's a lot for us to work on. And one of the consistent themes that we're going to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is the theme of unity. God has created a new organism, the church. Um, and he does not want to see this organism fracture or break apart. And that's going to be a key theme as we examine this opening paragraph. Really what I've read to you is the opening paragraph of chapter 4, which extends down to verse 16. And the word unity itself appears twice in this section. And notice in verses 4 through 6 how many times we see the word one. We see the word one seven times. Um, And so after that, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, Um, So that continues. And in verses 8 through 10, um, or after 8 through 10, where there's a reference to an Old Testament passage from Psalm 68, the paragraph then, um, from verses 11 on, goes on to talk about how God has gifted his church. So he's given each of us gifts to uh, to, to essentially arming arming the different parts of this body. So we're, we're, we're putting together a body of, of, be, of people that is going to function together as the church. And so different parts allow it to function effectively. And so you need those parts to be unified. Um, so the unity and the gifting of the body of Christ um, is going to be born out of a plea that Paul makes at the beginning of this chapter. And that plea was what? To walk worthy. I beseech you, I urge you that you walk worthy. It's not just a simple, like, I'd like you to do this. <laughs> It'd be kind of cool if you did this. Um, no, he's deadly serious. I mean, he's writing from prison. Um, it was, in, it was important, for him, important enough for him to remember to, to urge the Ephesians to do this as he wrote as a prisoner. And so our, our, our title today, our t- what we're going to look into is keeping a church together. How do we keep a church together? And so my plan today is to answer the question, what is he so worried about? What is Paul worried about? Why wouldn't this happen? Um, If we think that the first three chapters are leading up to this therefore in verse 1 of chapter 4, and that from this therefore flows all the applications for Christian living that's going to allow us to, one, walk worthy of our calling, and two, stay unified, Um, And that really extends all the way through at least verse 9 of chapter 6. 
where essentially everything hinges on this, this therefore. <laughs> so let's see, let's begin by identifying the problem that Paul is seeking to combat. And so our first, um, what we're, first question we're going to ask, what, what is our problem? <laughs> um, which is going to get at, what is Paul so worried about? What deserves this plea from prison? He desires the Ephesians from verse uh, 3 here to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And we just talked about a church building today before we get started. And we frequently say that the church is not the building, it's the people. Um, when Christ said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it, it wasn't a structure that he built. It was a people that he built. The true church consists of born-again children of God who, per chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians, have had a miraculous work of God done in their hearts, giving them spiritual life, whereby they responded in faith to Christ and have now submitted to him as their Lord. But... We know that being born again does not make people sinless. Uh, the Bible's clear on this. First, chapter, first John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is talking to, of God. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So uh, John's writing there is that, you know, we need to ask for forgiveness even after being a believer because we sin. This is what Paul said of himself in Romans chapter 7. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. So Paul had an internal struggle. Um, (laughs) Paul recognized that he still faced sin and he had to overcome it. So what is the problem with this new organism, this this New Testament church? Well, the problem with the new organism is people. (laughs) We're the problem. (laughs) Um, Look at uh, verse 3. We're asked, um, we're endeavor, so we have to endeavor, and then we go back to verse 2. We need to be long-suffering with one another. We need to forbear one another. Why is that? Well, people can get on our nerves. People can cause us grief. Even saved people, even people in the church. When we come together as an assembly, we don't suddenly cast off the part of humanity that, we, that, that um, struggles to get along with people that aren't quite like us. We still have that. Maybe they don't dress quite the same, or maybe they aren't as far, far along in their spiritual journey, or maybe they're having more success in their Christian walk than we are. And all of these things can cause a lack of unity to break out in the church, and that is not God's design. So we are the problem. (laughs) Now, in addition to our personal differences, one-on-one differences causing problems, recall the mystery that we looked at from the second half of chapter 2 through the first half of chapter 3. God took Jews and Gentiles, the two major groups, his chosen people and those who he hadn't chosen, and now he's put them together in the same organism. The Jews hated the Gentiles. They were proud over them. And the Gentiles, if someone... Um, hates you as a people group, over time, you're probably not going to like them either. And that's what happened. Uh, One was the chosen people of God, the Jews. The other followed pagan idols. And now they've been brought together in the same body. And that's some tight quarters for two former sworn enemies. 
So in the first three chapters, Paul has desired to have us so awestruck at what God has accomplished in our lives and so thankful that we are his born-again children that these petty differences between us and other people in the church vanish away. Look at the words, lowliness, verse 2, meekness. We need to get over ourselves, not be so proud, not feel like we need to assert our way. And that's what breaks up church bodies. That's why we have church splits. Verse 4 tells us that we are of one body, right? There is one body and of one spirit. We have all been saved as, and we are all indwelt if we are born again by one spirit. There is not more than one. So think of this picture. Chapters 1 through 3 are like reaching the summit of a tremendous mountain climb with amazing views. And we have a choice at the top of the mountain. Are we going to fight each other to see which one can stand on the highest spot? Or are we together in unison going to be amazed by the view? In the greatness of God's work, our differences that are born out of pride and a lack of patience should melt away. So let's look at what some of these characteristics look like that would promote unity and why the opposite of them does not. And so with that, we'll go in verse 2 and says, with all lowliness, lowliness. Lowliness in the English dictionary is just freedom from pride, humility, humbleness of mind. Freedom from pride. Well, that is certainly what we need to keep a church together. Uh, It's not my way. It's God's way. Pride really is at the root of all of our sin, and it's something that God hates. Proverbs 6.16. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look is number one. So God is not a fan of pride. Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. That's not something we see a lot of today. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So God's going to help the humble. He's going to resist the proud. If you're proud, you're going to run into God. So God's church requires humility. And our, uh, what gets proud is our flesh, our fallen nature that is still with us if we are born again. And it's going to be with us until we are glorified, until, until we either die or God comes to, or Christ comes to receive us. Unity in the church requires us to ignore our flesh and its desires. Remember, if you look back in chapter 2 and verse uh, 3, we learned about what we used to be like, among whom also we had our conversation or a lifestyle in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So that's what characterized us before salvation, but it should not characterize us now. Being characterized by lowliness is not going to avoid every conflict in the church. You can't do that. But it will bring the parties together with a hard attitude 
that is much more likely to bring reconciliation. If two people are coming into a conversation, a disagreement with my way is right and I am not going to budge and you are wrong and I'm always better than you, then you've got a problem, right? You're going to have two people that can't ever, there's no, no way you can get through that. But if you both come in a loneliness of mind, reconciliation is possible. But there's an addition to this uh, back in chapter 4 and verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness. Meekness, softness of temper, mildness, gentleness. And we hear over and over in the church again that meekness is not weakness, um, uh, but it is a softness of temper. Um, it, it says forbearance under injuries and provocations. That's a, yeah. So, we're in trouble if the church is made up of a bunch of hotheads. If there are lots, if explosions abound amongst God's people, you're not going to have unity for long. Uh, meekness is closely related to lowliness or humility. In fact, Christ demonstrated their relationship when he talked about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ said, Blessed are the meek in Matthew 5, 5, for they shall inherit the earth. Inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. So why do we need to be meek? Why do we need to be gentle? Why do we need to be not easy to provoke? Because we will have disagreements, and they are not sinful. In fact, they can be helpful. They can be helpful to identify and root out problems. Maybe a disagreement's about a legitimately good concern, like we need to figure out which way we're going to do this because one of them's not the right way. That's okay. That's a purifying thing. But the key in disagreements is the spirit in which they are handled. So we have lowliness, we have meekness, and now we have what? Long-suffering and forbearing. I'm going to read the verse again. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. So we begin with humility, which can lead to meekness, or which leads to meekness, or can lead, um, when confronted with a problem or disagreement. Now we're told to be long-suffering and forbearing one another in love. And this adds another equation to unity, right? There's a humbleness, there's a, a gentleness. And so let's see what, if you can spot what the, uh, the, the extra element that we're adding here with long-suffering is. So let me throw some um, definitions at you for long-suffering. It's kind of a neat word in the Greek. Uh, long-suffering is macrothumia, which means long, macros, and thumos, temper, like temperature, to keep you from getting hot. <laughs> and long-suffering means you are, you, are, you are, it takes a long time for you to do that. So you, are lo- you suffer long. You suffer long. Uh, Vine's Dictionary said, Long-suffering is the, that quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation which does not hastily retaliate or promptly punish. It is the opposite of anger and is associated with mercy. So we have long-suffering, but we also have forbearing, ceasing, pausing, withholding from action, exercising patience and indulgence, patience. In fact, it it is also known as long-suffering. So they're very similar terms. So we have a humility. 
We have a gentleness that we come into a situation. Long-suffering and forbearance adds something else. The missing element in loneliness and meekness is the element of time. Perhaps we can control our pride and remain gentle once with one provocation. But what about that person that just keeps getting under your skin? What do you do about them? Christ gives us a parallel. when He instructs us about the concept of forgiveness in Matthew chapter 18. In verse 21, Peter asks him, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. So we're to suffer long with one another. The church, it'd be different if the church was just a one-day activity. We get together, we do, we've done the church, and now we're done. But it's, an, it's not a one-day thing. It's not a here-today, gone-tomorrow work. It's an eternal work. And guess what? We're people. <laughs> and people, over time, you put enough of them together over a long enough time, and there's going to be friction. It just happens. In terms of long-suffering, it may remind us that we have a perfect example in God. Our conduct is worthy of his judgment today. It's worthy of his judgment yesterday. It's worthy of his judgment 6,000 years ago when this world began. But he suffers long with us. Think of how difficult it would be to deal with a child that turns his back on you every day. Exodus 34, 6 says, And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Psalm 86, 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. In fact, Paul recognized the long-suffering of Jesus Christ in his own life. He told this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul he is a bad guy to Christians, right? Uh, he is a great example for him to tell others. If God suffers long, look what he look look what he suffered through for me before he saved me. So he had a great. He was a great. He said he was a, a, a he could he could be a pattern. He would be something that God could use or he, and, and could be spoken of as an example to others. Look at what God waited for me to do before he saved me. So we can be tremendously grateful when we consider the long-suffering of God who waited long enough for our salvation to occur rather than justly condemning us to eternal flame. That's an important... And I didn't mention it here. I might mention it later. I'm not sure. But um, what's, what's interesting about Paul telling that to Timothy is Timothy is the person that Paul puts in charge of pastoring the church at Ephesus, this church one we're talking about here. So um, it's a neat relationship there. The Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is waiting until the last person that is going to be saved is saved before he brings judgment. And while the church is made up of people, It's also clear that 
um, <clears throat> people are the problem for unity in the church because we've not been yet glorified. We don't have everything's perfect in our lives. We're, we've not been fully cleansed. We've been fully forgiven for our sinfulness, but we do still sin. We need to root out our pride, which would then lend itself to a more gentle encounter and understanding approach to others, which then needs to be done over and over and over again, long-suffering. So what is the heart attitude that is going to allow this and, or foster this? And we see that in verse 3, forbearing one another in love. So that's the underlying motivator. If you remember, we talked about the definition from, of love from last week, and here's the ones I gave you. And let's see if we can apply these here. We love other people when we stop using them as a means to supply our deficiencies and instead rejoice in the divine enablement for us to supply their deficiencies. And love is taking whatever pains are necessary, even at the cost of your life, to bring others into the all-satisfying, everlasting enjoyment of the supremacy of God. So if that's your underlying motivation, when our hearts are set to bringing others to the all-satisfying enjoyment of Christ, we worry a lot less about our pride. We want others to see not how great we are, but how great Christ is. And so what this, this verse is saying, by adding love in there, it's not, not that we just forbear each other because that's our duty. Well, I'm supposed to get along with you, so I guess I will. Uh, we bear one another, we suffer long one, with one another because we rejoice in showing them the supreme value of Jesus and how that is more important to us than our pride. And that his name is of utmost importance and it's more important than any personality difference or anything like that that would drive a wedge between us. Our love for each other comes from an overflow of our love for Christ and what he's done for us. And that really should come from uh, the, re- the reading and the rereading of the first three chapters of this book. We should recall his love for us and our salvation and then allow this to spill over in our relationship with each other. That's, that's what we saw back in chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened or made us alive together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. So that's what he did for us. He was long-suffering and he acted out of love. Now, you may wonder, you may say, well, maybe this isn't balanced. And I want to be clear that Paul is, what Paul is not saying in these first few verses of chapter 4 is that we should ignore every difference and just simply get along with everyone, regardless of what they believe um, and teach. Paul is very careful about preserving sound doctrine. He doesn't want us to just say, well, your Christianity is kind of like mine, so let's just get along. In fact, he writes 1 Timothy to Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, and let's see what he says to him. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, which is page uh, 1672, 1672 in the Pew Bible. 1 Timothy 6, and I'm just going to read the first five verses. So it's going to start with servants and masters and then move on to doctrine. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine doctrine, be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, 
but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. So that's a, a master-servant relationship, and, and, and you know we could we could take it here as an employer-employee um, that there should uh, both sides should have that um, right attitude. But here's where where I want us to focus: If any man teach otherwise and consent, consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof come envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such, get along? No, withdraw thyself. So there's a balance here. Uh, This, uh, I think, the difference is largely that he's speaking of, it, it never surrounds true doctrine. If there is false teaching, it is to be separated from. And it's to be identified. And we, there is a method to, to teach, seek to teach someone about it. But if they are uh, not going to, to let go of that, then we withdraw from that. Um, we do not, we do not um, condone having all these essential doctrines disagreed upon in Christ's church. So we seek to suffer long and forbear and endeavor to keep unity, but we do not do this at the expense of sound doctrine. We must never cloud the doctrine of the church, which brings the potential of leading people away from the Lord Jesus and their supreme treasuring of him. We keep the doctrine pure. And that's why we read the first three chapters of this book first, and we learn about it because that's where the doctrine is. All right, so what is God's solution? And we'll go back to Ephesians 4 now. There we go. So you're probably not surprised that those characteristics promote unity. They kind of make sense. Don't be proud. Uh, be long-suffering. <laughs> um, that seems to make sense. But, but how do we do it? Um, we've discussed the fact that the biggest problem in the church is the people. So what's the solution to that? We can't get rid of all the people. That doesn't work. Um, that reminds me, <laughs> kids will like you. My, the, the, my grandmother always used to do that little thing with, with your hands where you put the, this, this is the church, and this is the steeple, open the doors, and they're all the people. And then I would do it with my hands this way because I didn't know any better, and then I'd open the doors and there weren't any people. Um, so that's not going to work, right? That's <laughs> we can't just evacuate the people. We need the people. That is who, for who Christ died. He didn't die for a building. He died for a people. So how do we do it? Um, are we simply just supposed to try harder? Well, I guess I'm going to really try to be long-suffering. Because what does it say in verse 3? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So endeavoring, there is a work involved. It is effort. But there's an ingredient there, which is the Spirit, which we'll get to shortly. And the goal is the unity and the bond of peace. And why is peace there? Uh, that, rever- that refers us back to the peace that Christ himself brought back to between uh, Jews and Gentiles, right? He said back in chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the war, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace. And that, God, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which are nigh. 
For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So, despite our ethnic and personality difference, how do we maintain unity? And the key ingredient, as I alluded to already, is the Holy Spirit. It's the key ingredient to our success and how we, but it's also a key ingredient in our cooperation, that we cooperate, that we work with the Spirit. Born-again Christians don't simply, as the current today's phrase would go, let go and let God. They actively pursue what they have been called to do. Actively concerned, or actively uh, pursue what they have been called to do. So that word endeavor in verse 3 literally has an earnestness to it, a zealousness to it, a diligence to it. We're to be earnest and zealous in our pursuit of unity. And by the unity of the Spirit, we're going to look, um, well, we're going to not hit it all this week. Uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to see in verse 4 that there is only one Holy Spirit. We've talked about that already. Um, But we also know that if we are born-again believers, we have this Holy Spirit within us. So what does this Holy Spirit do? Why? So we're going to cooperate. We're going to endeavor to pursue unity. We want it. We're going to zealously seek unity, but we need the help of the Holy Spirit because it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's unity of the Spirit. The Spirit's going to be involved in this. We're going to work together. How does that happen? Um, and and, and what, how can we see this at work? And so for that, there's a parallel passage that I want us to turn to in Galatians chapter 5, which is page 1642. It's just to the left in, the, in, in your Bibles here. Just a couple pages, in fact. 1642. Um, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. And I'm going to read a, a decent little section here. Because you're going to see Paul making a similar appeal to the Galatians here. But I'm going to begin at verse 13 and read down to verse 26. And we're going to see uh, how this works. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty... Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye not be consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, And these are contrary the one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. So now there's going to be a contrast. There's a spirit and flesh contrast going on. So verse 19, we're going to go in one direction. Now the works of the flesh are these, or are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and the such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Hopefully you're hearing some familiar words. Meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we, walk in the, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. 
Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. So in this section, in verses 13 through 15, we see that while Christians have liberty, right? We are, my brethren, even call them liberty. While we have liberty from the Old Testament law, we're not supposed to spend our time exerting our individual rights, but we're supposed to, by love, verse 13, serve one another. So that's out of love. So that's parallel to what we're seeing in Ephesians. We're supposed to serve one another out of love, not just simply be proud about our liberty. But how do we do this? Verse 16 says, walk in the spirit. We have our own sinful nature, the flesh, and that, that, if, um, that if we satisf- satisfy, is only going to fulfill our own lusts. And verse 17 shows us the war that exists between the Christ- in, within the Christian and that battle we, that we need to be engaged in. We need to be submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit. You say, Why? Well, there's a battle. If we let our flesh win, we get 18, verses 18 through 21. That's a pretty sad list. It's a horrible list. It's a selfish list. It's a divisive list. It's an injurious list. It's not going to bring unity, that's for sure. It's going to bring fracture. But if you were to move to verse 22 and 23, to what the Spirit produces... We see familiar characteristics, peace, love, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness. They're all there. They're all part of what the Spirit produces. And this, and this is first called the fruit of the Spirit, right? In verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit, that is what the Spirit can produce. But how can we have access to this? Well... We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit as believers, but we must learn, as verse 25 says, we live in the Spirit, we have the Spirit within us, we need to also walk in the Spirit. And from Ephesians, what we've been studying, our walk is how we live, it's not our physical walk, it's our lifestyle. But we must learn to walk in the Spirit or have a lifestyle that's in the Spirit. We need to submit ourselves to the Spirit's control. We need to deny our flesh. We need to do these things that are characteristics... Um, uh, and and when when we do these things, sorry, when we submit ourselves to the Spirit, these things tend to bubble up, these good characteristics. When a church of people do these things, and they say, your will, God, not mine, then these characteristics will bring unity to the people of God. So a natural question arises then. Well, that sounds good. I want to walk in the Spirit. (laughs) How do I do that? And it's not a magical topic, you know, it's not a, it's a mystical walk that you need to spirit, you know, it's not crazy. Um, the Bible commands us to do it, right? If we live in the, in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So we have to be able to do it. So um, if you, now, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, sorry, let me, if you're not a Christian, you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, you can't do this. Uh, it's, it's, it's a, these things are fruit of the spirit. They're not fruit of you. They're fruit of the spirit, not of an unbeliever, not of your flesh. So let's say we have a desire to maintain unity. Um, and perhaps there's some items on this fruit of the spirit list that we don't do really well, that we have trouble with in our lives. So what do we do? Well, 
We need first recognize that they're fruits of the Spirit, not fruits of our sinful flesh. We're never going to have enough willpower to simply change our ways to look more like Christ. We're not going to say, well, now, I, yeah, I was doing all these things, but now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have joy. <laughs> I'm going to be peaceful. I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm just going to do it. So we need to recognize these are fruits of the Spirit. We also need to pray to God that he would give us the grace to demonstrate these attributes. We need to recognize he needs to help us. Remember in this context that to give us the grace means to give us the divine enablement, to enable us. We need to ask him to help us do what we cannot do ourselves. That is a very humbling thing. And in fact, when we pray to God, the Bible tells us that the Spirit helps us with that. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, helps our weaknesses, For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. We're not even sure what we should pray for. We don't even get that right. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Spirit goes to the Lord and and, and many, we get from the Lord what he wants us to have, not always what we want to have because we still don't have a perfect wanter yet. Um, We don't always desire the things that we should. So, We have the Holy Spirit's help even making that request. Thirdly, we must have a heart that is motivated by seeking the supremacy of God in all things. What's our motivation? Why are we going to God for this help to do things that would bring unity? It's a heart that recognizes that supreme joy that comes in making much of Jesus Christ. Setting this above our fleshly desires as our heart's ultimate desire will point us in the right direction. But there is one more critical element. So you're going to recognize, I want to have unity. Um, I, 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 want, I, I recognize that these things that, that you know, maybe it's long-suffering. Maybe I struggle with long-suffering. I recognize, Lord, that that is not something I can just, I'm just going to be long-suffering now. I'm going to need your help. And I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to ask him, say, Lord, I know that I'm going to struggle with this and I need your help. And the reason... That prayer should really be born out of, I want unity because I just, not just because I don't want conflict, but because I want Jesus to get magnified. I want people to see him as good. Why are we doing this? Why are we together and and unified? Not just so that we can be one big happy family. So other people can see Christ in us and say, I want that. I think that's a really good thing. It's better than anything else. So we got those ingredients. But the last one that's critical is we need to have faith. We need to have faith. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. We have to know that we cannot do the things which will make unity possible by ourselves, but we must believe that God and his spirit will produce these fruits when we humble ourselves and submit to him. There's a faith there. I can't do it. I want you to do it. I ask you, and then I have to believe that you're going to answer that prayer because that is something you want. You've told me in your word, you want unity. You want me to be long-suffering. So I have to believe that you're going to produce that in me. If I don't believe you, then you're not going to answer my prayer. We have to trust 
the promises of God. By, uh, the Bible in, in Hebrews eleven six that if we don't, says if we don't have faith, it is impossible to please God. You have to believe that He's going to do these things. If you if you pray to God and you don't believe that He's going to answer, then that's not demonstrating any faith. So let's close with a few exhortations and questions, or an exhortation and a few questions. The exhortation is this. And it's similar to what Paul is saying to us here back in Ephesians chapter 4. I urge you to zealously strive for the unity of the church, submitting yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit by going to God in prayer, trusting him to produce the characteristics in us necessary to make unity happen. And I'll say that again. It's kind of like an encapsulation of what we were talking about. I urge you to zealously strive for the unity of the church, submitting yourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? By going to God in prayer, trusting him to produce the characteristics in us necessary to make that happen. We're obviously currently a pretty small group of believers and last time I checked, we haven't had too many knockdown, drag out fights with each other. But that's that's a core beginning. And there isn't oh, small groups don't necessarily mean no disunity. And so it's a good place to start. So let's ask ourselves three questions as we seek to maintain unity at Northern Light Baptist Church as, as God would grow us. One, do we recognize the importance of unity? Can a body function with each part going in different directions, right? If your legs are doing one thing, your arms are doing another, you're going to be in trouble. If your two legs are doing something different, you're going to be in trouble. Do you recognize the importance of unity? Secondly, do you recognize that you need the Holy Spirit's help in you making unity happen? And then thirdly, And it's a question that's more of an exhortation going forward based on the lesson. Have you prayed to God for the unity of believers in this work? It's not going to take long. Lord willing, we will grow and he will add people to this work. And there will very quickly be the opportunity for disunity. And so we need to pray now that that does not happen. Whenever you may feel a problem cropping up between you and another person in the church, maybe one of the best things to do first is to go to chapters 1 through 3 of this book. And then focus more on the view of the Savior than which rock you're standing on. Let's pray.